0: Hello, everybody! Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline.
1: Hi, I'm Sleepy.
0: And this is Sleepy Janie. Hello. How are you, Sleepy, today, Jane? <laughs>
1: I'm very Jane today, thank you, Sleepy.
0: We're the premiere podcast all about the, your favorite Rick Riordan books. Right now, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, book five, The Last Olympian, chapters 15 through 17. We're yeah. getting close to
1: the end. Close to the end, close to moving on to the uh, Rick Riordan series that you heard he wrote and thought, eh, I might get around to that at some point.
0: That's, that's right. <laughs> and what was the name of that again, Jane?
1: Uh, it's the Kane Chronicles, right?
0: That's right. Good job. I was half expecting you wouldn't know it.
1: (laughs) I'm just saying that I feel like a significant contingent of people maybe got a third of the way through the first book, then put it down and skipped straight to the stuff that has Percy Jackson in it again.
0: That's probably true. (laughs) I'm sure there are a lot of people who are in their middle school library and we're like, hey, Rick Riordan, I know that name from Percy Jackson. And then we're like, oh... I don't understand these words. I don't know what this means. I don't know what's up with this and uh simply put it back down
1: it's It's very possible. We're passing a lot of judgment on these books that we haven't read yet.
0: no judgment no judgment i I'm simply i in fact I've read them and I enjoy them quite a bit
1: oh i've never I've never even picked up a copy of them
0: they're they're pretty good if i mean it's been like like I was middle school or maybe early high school when I read them so uh, i I don't remember too well, but
1: fair enough. I remember
0: enjoying them. So, Jane, do you want to take us right to summaries?
1: Uh, I-, I will take us right to summaries. I checked the news very briefly, and it is the same thing that we get basically every week now with Percy Jackson news. Nothing. Three clickbait articles and a few that are like, did you know that a Percy Jackson TV series is in development and may come out as soon as sometime in the next decade?
0: Jane, get. are you going to... Okay, quick, Jane, who would you be cast as in the show?
1: Uh hmm i think that i would make a good um what's her face the sorceress one from sea of monsters oh cersei that's the one i was i was thinking that and i wasn't sure if i was getting it confused with the game of thrones lady
0: oh um, cersei yeah that's understandable i think (laughs) all right
1: wait no who would you be cast as
0: Hmm. I think I would make, uh, assuming this happens like in 10 years or something, uh-huh. uh, I I would be cast as Aphrodite, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I'd agree with that.
0: Ah, you're sweet.
1: Thank you. All right, summaries. Buckle your fuckles, folks. These are some dense ones. These go on for a while. Uh, chapter 15, Chiron Throws a Party. Percy throws himself into the fray once again, but even his invulnerability isn't enough to counter the simple arithmetic of Kronos's huge army against the ragtag defenders. The campers are pushed back to within touching distance of the Empire State Building, and Kronos executes his final gambit, coming to the front lines personally to deliver the killing blow. And then, once again, the party ponies invade. Led by Chiron, they manage to turn the tide and drive the enemy back across the East River, before withdrawing and setting up a defensive line. In the lull after the battle, Annabeth and Percy discuss the visions he's been getting about Luke, and Annabeth explains that part of why she's so attached to Luke is that, in her fairly chaotic life, he was a point of stability for some time. This brings the conversation back around to her fatal flaw from Sea of Monsters, her prideful desire to build things that last forever. She's hopeful when Percy tells her about his vision of Ethan Nakamura, which implied that Kronos isn't totally in control of Luke yet. Percy is less than pleased about this, but before they can really get into it, Percy finds himself catapulted across the country, and into a dingy bar in a rural area. It seems to be a birthday party, and because there's drinking, and it's a party, a part of Dionysus is present there. He warns Percy not to accept Prometheus' deal. Surrender would not only mean the death of the gods, but also all of the products of quote-unquote Western Civilization, which he lists as art, lore, wine tasting, music, video games, etc., He also, reluctantly, admits that heroes are an essential part of the godly ecosystem. They need non-divine folk looking out for them, because if nobody cares enough to save them, they'll end up like Pan. He also warns Percy of an impending catastrophe. In one day, Kronos will burn off Luke's body and return to his true form, giving every other titan a huge buff in the process. He makes Percy promise to keep an eye on his son Pollux, and then sends him back to the exact same instant he left in Manhattan. After reorienting himself, Percy realises that a familiar Prius is in the street, containing his mum and Paul. After a quick meltdown, he and the others move the car and his sleeping family to a safe location, and realise they had something in the back, Pandora's Jar, which will apparently just keep following Percy around and tempting him to open it. While this is happening, the gang hear a helicopter entering the city, and look up just in time to see Rachel's ride drop out of the sky as the pilot is put to sleep by the Morpheus enchantment. Chapter 16 we get help from a thief. After a Pegasus-based helicopter rescue, Rachel makes it to the ground safely. For some reason, the sleep spell isn't affecting her, and she's come with a bunch of cryptic prophecies for Percy, as well as Greek writings that she's written out but doesn't understand. She gives Percy two warnings. There's about to be a trick that ends with death, and, more importantly, he is not the hero. While Percy is indignant about that second one, Chiron comes over and tells Percy to get some sleep, since he's been fighting non-stop since the battle started. While he does that, Rachel and Chiron head off to discuss her visions more. In his dreams, Percy sees Nico imploring Hades to go and help the Olympians, pointing out that his separation from them, and other wrathful grudge-holding, has consistently made him totally miserable. The dream fades before Percy can see if Nico got through to him. Instead, he sees the enemy camp at the UN. Kronos is pissed about the setback the Centaurs gave him, and is taking it out on his lieutenants. He wants Olympus conquered before Typhon arrives to finish the battle, even if that means attacking before he's regenerated into his true form. He orders Prometheus to unleash a Dracon that they've kept in reserve, reasoning that even if it's a risk to launch another assault so soon, the demigods won't have had time to recover. The news gets worse when Percy wakes up, as Rachel and Chiron inform him that this specific Dracon is fated to be killed by a child of Ares. In other words, the spy has leaked that the Ares Cabin aren't around, and in the process has completely fucked them. Kronos' army arrives, and Percy, Mrs. O'Leary, and Annabeth attempt to fight off the Dracon while the rest of the good guys get mauled by the Titans' forces. Even with the party ponies, the outlook is bleak, until at the very last moment, 15 chariots crash into the side of the enemy army, carrying the fighters from the Ares Cabin. Clarice, wearing full armour, leads the charge towards the Dracon, and Percy hopes that she might be able to finish it off before the Dracon rears back and spits corrosive poison straight into her face. Percy dives in and tries to distract the beast, but notices something odd. A flying chariot carrying... Clarice. She seems to be in two places at once, lying on the ground in her armour and dying, and on her feet, absolutely enraged about something as she kills the Drakon. Once it's dead, there's a lull in the fighting where it becomes clear what's happened. The Ares kids would only ever have followed Clarice into battle, So when convincing them failed, Silena Beauregard took Clarice's armor as a disguise and fooled them into joining the fight. She tricked them, and in the process, has ended up dead, just as Rachel predicted. Chapter 17, I sit in the hot seat. It soon becomes clear why Silena went to such extreme lengths to try and fix things, as she reveals that she was at first manipulated and then blackmailed by Luke into being the spy. She dies in Clarice's arms, and the other girl flies into an unmatched fury, baying for Kronos's blood as she slaughters his forces and drives them back. Percy takes this opportunity to give some mysterious instructions to Mrs O'Leary, whose shadow travels away, before heading up to Mount Olympus with Grover and Annabeth to prepare the final defence. While they're in the elevator, Annabeth admits that hearing about what happened to Silena has convinced her that Luke really was always scum, and she's not happy about it. The trio head to the throne room and find Rachel. She hid in here during the fighting, and now she's fiddling with Pandora's jar. They take it off her and she snaps out of whatever weird trance the jar had put her in. She and Percy go over to Hestia while Annabeth and Grover dig around for equipment. Rachel tells Percy that she doesn't think their fates are intertwined, and that she was drawn to him because it showed her what she was meant to do. Percy takes this as being dumps, and in that moment, between that and everything else that's happening, he seriously considers just opening the damn jar and ending it. However, Hestia shows him a vision of his friends and family which reminds him what he's fighting for. He gives the jar to Hestia to keep, and marches off reinvigorated. He sits in Poseidon's throne to gain his attention, it almost getting disintegrated in the process, and convinces him to ditch the battle in the sea to come and help the gods deal with Typhon. He reluctantly agrees to do this, and Percy hops out of the throne to go and lead the defense, as Kronos himself enters the battle again. So, what did you think of these chapters?
0: Okay, so I need, I need to explain my thought process going into these chapters, because... I read the beginning of chapter 15, right? Ah. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it's it's cool fighting. It's good, you know, action description. It's it's still, like, you know, pretty nice
1: prose. Yeah, it gives, gives a good sense of the cacophony of a battle.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. the The party ponies come back and they're not insufferable.
1: Yeah.
0: They're not as insufferable. I still hate them. Yeah, I mean, understandable. <laughs> <laughs> but... Eh, And then it just, like, completely flips on us.
1: It just... It it just... uh, It hammers us with, like, payoff after payoff for stuff that's run throughout the entire series. Yeah. And also just, like, some of the most emotional moments in the series.
0: Okay, so do we want to just get right into, like, that emotion of it?
1: Hmm. I feel like we we should cover some smaller stuff first.
0: Do you have anything you'd like to cover first in that case?
1: I kind of want to talk about... I I feel like we should maybe get the negative stuff out of the way, because we've got a lot of, like, good shit to say about these. Go ahead. I kind of want to talk about Mr. D's conversation with Percy. Okay. In the bar. Yeah. Because, uh, there's, there's some stuff in here that I find, like, concerning, but I'm also scratching my head about whether we're supposed to be taking it at face value.
0: Uh, I... Can you elaborate?
1: Okay, so, basically, Mr. D describes the West... Uh, in, like, terms that seem like they come straight out of, like, a Joseph Conrad novel. Like, it is a shining beacon of civilization in an otherwise barbarous world. Like, he lists a bunch of stuff like, oh, video games and lore and stuff like that that no country outside of the West has ever developed. And it's just... Like, that's... that's rough to read, but on the other hand, I don't know if that's something that we're supposed to be like, okay, this is just true. Because, you know, Mr. D has every reason to have an inflated sense of his his own self-importance and also to exaggerate it even more to try and make sure that Percy helps him.
0: I think there is that element of, like, I don't know, like, a lot of people are like, you know, America, the greatest country in the world, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, that, you know, the it's a very stereotypical, like, not stereotypical, but also just a kind of very common uh, attitude, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And by by Americans, at least. Um, and I think that, like, like I read an article the other day. It wasn't an article. It was, like, a something a high schooler had written. Mm-hmm. But I read it because I saw a screenshot on Twitter. It was basically, like, a high schooler writing an article that was, like, are Americans brainwashed? Yes, but it's good that they are. Oh my god. <laughs> and it was like back in back in the Soviet Union they brainwashed everyone to make them think that communism was good. But nowadays we have good brainwashing that makes you think that everything <laughs> it's it, it, it's that same attitude, right? It's that yeah. same that, that same quote-unquote good brainwashing.
1: Yeah, it's it's that kind of American exceptionalism.
0: Yeah. And at the same time, I do think that there is an element here of, like, we're not entirely supposed to take this face value.
1: No, because, I mean, like, the big thing is that Percy, like, gets this whole spiel and he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Like, it doesn't affect him at all. He spends the whole thing asking Mr. D if he can go. And we see repeatedly throughout these chapters that, like, the, like, nebulous idea of the West is not even anywhere near the top of the reasons why Percy is doing any of this. It's always about his family and his friends.
0: And that's even reiterated on, on these chapters yeah. in a really good way.
1: Oh well, Yeah, because we jump straight from that to the Prius. Exactly. Percy's reactions to, between finding that Prius there and the apocalyptic speech from Mr. D, like night and day, Like he has a full emotional breakdown when he realizes how much danger they're in.
0: Exactly. And that's even, I think, expanded further in his conversation with Chris Rodriguez later. hmm There's an element here in this conversation that's really interesting to me because it expands on something that was kind of not introduced but implied a few chapters earlier. uh uh-huh. When Mr. D says, like, we basically need all of you to keep believing in us so that we keep surviving. hmm And... There's a bit of horror here to, in my eyes. Uh-huh. Not in the way of like, oh, these these beings would crumble They it, without the, the belief of more. That's not the aspect of horror that there is. It's looking at Camp Half-Blood under that lens. Mm-hmm it's looking at the very specifically crafted camp half blood where children are sent out to reenact these tales these very classically greek uh Uh archetypal you know stories heroes adventures over and over again it's this is like something out of the magnus archives this is like a this is like a battery powering the reality of the gods that they've created magnus
1: chase more like magnus archives
0: (laughs) (laughs) and it's horrifying it is
1: it's kind of it's it definitely recontextualizes the gods a little bit yeah and it kind of nudges it in more of a kind of american gods direction i think where like the the gods are like almost parasites who, like, feed off the belief of humans and, like, need to cause a certain amount of chaos to keep belief going for them.
0: Yeah, and I think this is really effective because it's coming at the end of the series Mm -hmm. and also because because it's not anything new. We already kind of knew all this, but it hasn't been so laid out, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, the implication of all of this was definitely already there. Like what Apollo was saying, um... I think in Titan's curse he mentions that he's the sun god now because humans believe that he's the sun god and that's why he took over from the last guy.
0: Mhm. And I think this creates a fascinating base for going forward with the whole franchise, I guess.
1: Yeah, because because one of the things that like we raised in Lightning Thief was like okay, is this like a Yu-Gi-Oh situation mm-hmm. where all other religions are completely wrong and it's just these gods. But this this definitely seems to open up the floor to, like, no, pretty much any religion with enough humans believing in it will probably end up manifesting in some way.
0: Which means that we can finally, definitively affirm <laughs> that in Percy Jackson, Jesus is real and a demigod.
1: Jesus, Jesus is real. In fact, yeah, that's the only conclusion we can take from this. Like, he has to be if that's how it works.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, God, yeah, I, (laughs) I'm, (laughs) oh, okay. There is one good part of this conversation, and I think it's specifically the part where we get a bit more of, like, Dionysus the dad.
1: Absolutely. I like this bit.
0: Dionysus is like, hey, Percy, I'm like i don't know if you're aware of this but my son one of my sons died last year and his brother is still around i don't want to lose another son like i think this is kind of the behavior that we speculated dionysus would have but it's good to see it on the page
1: yeah i like i like when we get to see more human dionysus
0: especially because he is still one of our favorite gods i would say
1: absolutely he's he's near the top of the list for sure
0: and and listeners, we will we will definitively have a, a favorite god by the end of the series. Oh god,
1: uh, should we do like a tier list?
0: I don't. Maybe a <laughs> tier list. Maybe we'll just give away like superlatives. That's a
1: good idea. We'll see. And how And also it goes. easier to represent in an audio in an audio medium.
0: It's very true. I uh, speaking. I guess of hmm, like certain people being put over other certain people. Do we want to talk about Annabeth?
1: Yes, definitely. Annabeth gets some like absolutely amazing character work in these chapters, I think.
0: I completely agree. This is one of Annabeth's shining moments.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh do you wanna was there any specific parts you wanted to call out?
0: I think there are, it's the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's Annabeth Annabeth is like spiraling through these chapters, this is basically what's happening. Yeah. She's at the point where everything has just kind of worn her down she's kind of accepted like okay there's no more going for Luke Uh, everything with Percy sucks it's too complicated (laughs) even though that was once like a place of like safety for her it isn't anymore Mm -hmm. and you know she does fucking everything for everyone in these chapters she gets in a helicopter and like saves people's lives
1: absolutely it, it's one of many several epic moments for our favorite characters in these chapters.
0: There really are. But I, I just really enjoy what it's doing because I do think this is kind of the... I guess everything that was built up to. And it's not just like, oh, okay, I expected all this. This is like, oh, I, we're seeing a really effective payoff here, like you talked about earlier.
1: Yeah, it like... I like the, the conversation she has with Percy in chapter 15. Which, like, it crystallizes a lot of why she cares so much about Luke. Yeah. Like, the idea that it's not so much that she has a crush on him as he was, like, a singular point of stability in her life for so long. And that's why she's so attached to him. Like, I buy that way more than the crush thing. For why she would still be hoping to get him back. Like, that makes me way more invested.
0: It makes so much sense. It's, It's a really good character detail. I... And it really, it hurts
1: more. I don't know, it, it hurts more. Absolutely, it hurts. It Especially, like, it emphasizes how much it hurts two chapters later when she's like, oh, fuck, no, he was evil. I have to accept this. And she's,
0: and like, granted for good reason, she's so bitter about it.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I love the, that. the specific visual of, like, her leaning against the uh, the side of the elevator with her head down. Like, I don't know why. That's just like a really strong image for how defeated she is.
0: It's a good Amangelian moment. <laughs> uh, is that the same scene where she's like, "All right, Percy, you were right." You know, like,
1: mm-hmm, yeah. y- you
0: told me so. And Percy's obviously like, "No, that's not what I meant," but you know.
1: <laughs> but it kind of was a little bit.
0: Yeah, he we we the, the advantage of having one singular protagonist whose head we're always inside of is that we know that is kind of what he really meant Mm -hmm. he was always like annoyed like annabeth just get over luke already he (laughs) didn't have that he didn't have percy is a very empathetic hero but he didn't have i guess the full scope of it that he that he needed to have ultimately
1: you can understand why he was so much i mean he didn't know luke for as long and luke tried to directly kill him way more times than he has annabeth exactly but yeah, it's it's definitely a bittersweet moment to see like Annabeth finally accepting what she needed to about Luke, but knowing how much it hurts her.
0: Yeah, I I think we talked we've talked a little bit throughout these books mm-hmm. about how Rick Riordan sometimes likes to repeat character arcs. A little bit. It
1: happens sometimes.
0: We never really feel like even if at the end of the book there's you know a character arc closed there's a possibility that it'll still get like touched upon reopened and that's like i think something we've both praised and criticized in certain aspects of it
1: yeah it can be done well and it can be done badly cc of monsters for instance <laughs> exactly
0: which i i would say some of the better elements of that book are with annabeth Absolutely. and
1: those are the parts that have carried over to this
0: exactly this is like the fact that Annabeth has been so focused on really helps
1: here. Yeah, for sure.
0: And if she was... If she was a POV character throughout these books, which I think there is like a, a reality where that's true, mm-hmm. I don't think this would have been as effective.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it works better as like her own emotional turmoil bubbling away in the background.
0: Especially because that adds on to just the feeling of the utter disaster that is the war going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of, I do have just, like, a stray thought about this war. Uh-huh. This kind of curse and I wanted to share. Okay. Which is just, I I feel like there has to be an alternate universe somewhere where these books were written, but, like, Mount Olympus is at the US Capitol building.
0: Jesus Christ. And this,
1: this whole section just aged incredibly poorly.
0: I guess, should we... Uh, should we move across the aisle so to speak oh you got god me in the, uh from annabeth to rachel
1: rachel's a fucking weird character isn't she yeah like i don't dislike what goes on with her here but i can't put my finger on why it just feels kind of off
0: there are a few elements to it like if rachel had been introduced maybe a book earlier mm-hmm. if i think if things had been allowed to progress although it's like over a longer period of time that would have helped a lot i think it is
1: maybe that like her her point of contact with this world has always been percy yeah and we didn't really get to see her expand out beyond that before this moment
0: no like if maybe we had
1: a bit of time for them to like drift apart or for her to make some other friends within like this like magical world maybe this would feel a bit less out of left field
0: yeah, and I do think that there's a point to which, like, Rachel does feel like a character who is only tethered to this world by the fact that she's seen it all her life, and also she has one friend within
1: it. Oh, fuck, I sorry about I th- the fact that she's seen it all her life. But, yeah.
0: No, your point still stands, though. Uh-huh. But I do think, at the very least, even if that's not maybe, like, the the like maybe that's not our ideal position for her to be in i think she's still being effectively written as a character mm-hmm. within those circumstances
1: all i'm all i'm saying is that she should have had relationships with other characters for example being rescued from the helicopter by annabeth that is a perfect point for a diverging universe um annabeth rachel fanfiction. <laughs>
0: very true. Very true. And, uh, we, I guess, speaking of relationships, this is, you know, we get, you know, Rachel dumping Percy. Kind of. <laughs>
1: God, I feel so fucking bad for Percy.
0: He's, uh, you know, he's having a shit day. His, both of his girlfriends broke up with him <laughs> a, a little bit. Uh, oh, his parents are gonna die, maybe. Um, he, he... Mr. Yeah, D still doesn't he... know his name. <laughs> at least he's invulnerable, I guess.
1: Which, <laughs> I suppose that is good because, like, I think we noted early on in the series, there are several times when Percy seriously, like, considers killing himself. <laughs> so it's probably <laughs> a Jesus good thing Christ. that he can't do that now.
0: <laughs> That's actually kind of sad. <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, I. I hmm. What I do like from Rachel here is how kind of ephemeral everything with her is like
1: mm-hmm. not
0: like dreamlike a little bit dreamlike actually a little bit dreamlike and that's it, kind of been how it's been around her since the start
1: that's true yeah
0: and extending that to like whatever the fuck is going on well, okay do you have a theory on what's going on with her at all
1: uh she's definitely like the oracle right like a, mm. a reincarnation because I think there's even a line where Percy's like, I'm having fucking visions of glowing eyes and rotting peanut butter sandwiches right now.
0: I, I could definitely see that. Um, is Isn't the oracle still, like, isn't the spirit of the oracle still in Camp Half-Blood?
1: Yeah, but I, but what they... They tried to, like, take it out of the mummy and put it into May Castellan, right? And that's kind of what fucked her up so bad. Right, right.
0: But I'm just thinking about, like... Does this mean she is like a naturally descended like oracle? What's the thing? What's the thing here? Because I do think, I think that she has got something to do with the oracle.
1: Yeah, I I think Mae Cashlin also had like some precognition before that whole thing happened. Hmm. So it makes sense if Rachel has like some of those qualities before any actual oracle stuff happens.
0: I do think like speaking about like the position of the oracle. The oracle has always been kind of removed from the rest of the camp.
1: Well, yeah, they keep her locked in an attic because she looks weird.
0: And, and also is dead. Also that. Uh, so I think like having a character like Rachel, who has almost no ties to this camp, this world, kind of makes sense as a successor for the oracle in that way.
1: Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I do also like, while I don't think it was like built up to particularly well... I do like the whole thing she's doing like not centering Percy as the most important character in the plot definitely like I think that's something that has always been like what marks Percy as a unique hero in the pantheon of YA book protagonists mm-hmm. is that like he's not conventionally written he's like he's very empathetic he's not other people will like trample him for their own character development sometimes right right and like, he's, basically he's not Rambo.
0: And he has been kind of putting himself in that hero position throughout these, like even this book specifically. Especially this one, yeah. And I think bringing him back down to that level of like, you're not the hero. That's important.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, wait, we need to do prophecy prediction corner, I just realized. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Because <laughs> I think we both know exactly what this means
0: yes we we talked extensively like what does this mean i think one of us even said like what if the hero is somebody else i
1: think you specifically said what if the hero is luke
0: <laughs> well I'm, I'm not sure if it'll be luke exactly but i i will accept your your praise anyway and uh, then no me ten thousand dollars um damn it but <laughs> you don't have to it's okay you know
1: then i will not
0: the prophecy, a half-blood of the eldest gods shall reach 16 against the laws, and see the world in endless sleep the hero's soul, cursed blade, shall reap. It would make sense if this was
1: Luke. Definitely.
0: I'm not sure. I guess he becomes the hero by maybe he'll turn the blade against himself. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's a different cursed blade that,
1: hmm. Because it would, it would also make sense, a single choice to end his day's Olympus too etc oh maybe he'll let percy stab him because one of the first things that percy thought of when he heard that prophecy was hmm i wonder if riptide is the cursed blade
0: oh right 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 riptide is a pretty cursed history
1: yeah it was used by a horrible misogynist
0: (laughs) yeah yeah that's basically true um but yeah i'm i don't hate it i don't hate it rachel I do think she could have just used one more book to be in. To be honest, yeah. And I think we talk about the strengths of Rick Riordan's writing a lot. We talk about, you know, how good he is at this, that, the other. And sometimes there are certain things like maybe I don't know. It this is a series where everything after it's introduced. It's like, okay, wow, yeah, this is a cool new element. It seems interesting to the plot, like, you know, all of that. But it does sometimes feel like, okay, this is being introduced for this book. It wasn't necessarily pre-planned, but now it has to kind of figure into things in a way that could have been if it was planned out earlier, maybe could have been done a little bit better.
1: Yeah, the labyrinth and the sea of monsters leap immediately to mind as elements that are like that.
0: Yeah. And even, even, I guess, Rachel Elizabeth there.
1: Hmm. I think it just it maybe just stands out because like this this is like like we said a, a set of chapters that are full of long arc payoffs for characters that work really well, mm-hmm. and hers being a little bit of a dud is just kind of in a bad position because it really stands out. Yeah. One one other like good character moment for a long running person we need to talk about first. Uh, Nico finding his spine and standing up to Hades. Yes. I I love this scene so much.
0: It, I adore it. It's so good.
1: It It's it's such good like character writing because like basically what happens is that Nico is like seeing himself in Hades. Like he's his one of his defining characteristics is that he's always felt very distant from his family. And mm-hmm. now that he's finally found something that he can relate to Hades over, it helps him like connect with him and yeah. stand up to him. Yeah, because you know he spent all the book four miserable living underground hating everyone and And, it was shit
0: and uh, he realizes like hey my god dad is also just a person who has been living underground hating everyone Uh, and that's just like me and now I see myself and I see that maybe like there is like he's both humanizing his dad in a way but also is like okay this is not like an impossible thing now Mm -hmm. this is not like i can just like talk to him because i know who he is because that's who i am
1: yeah exactly and also like demeter and persephone continue to be very funny in this scene
0: (laughs) persephone just with the most like fickle like like, oh, I guess I don't you know, just just kill the kid already, and, <laughs> or, well, I think a Demeter, I guess says that,
1: yeah, Demeter says that, I think Persephone's best line is something like, um, fuck it, I'm sick of eating cereal, I just can can we go up and fight, please,
0: yeah,. It- I guess it's part of the like oh the remove of these two like they are mm-hmm. so far away from the situation that they don't have to care about it in the same way
1: they are just continuing to have these very funny like domestic disputes
0: and it is very funny extremely okay let's 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 get to it all
1: right here we go
0: so you've already heard in the summary uh it, this is this is. The big sad moment, the big, the big Jacqueline cry, Jane cry. Mm-hmm. This is the part where we, ch- okay, I, what I, how I want to frame this is I want to talk about, I guess, emotional climax of this, the way that that is used here. Uh-huh. Because we've been talking for like four episodes about how cool it's going to be when Clarice shows up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um and it was cool. I I did scream and cheer and clap and yell and all of that. I was like, yeah, Clarice, the Aries cabin, Silena commenced them, you know? Yeah. And it was it was cool. It was good. Um and and and, and then Silena died. Mm-hmm. And it was revealed that oh, it wasn't it wasn't Clarice; it was her, and I. It's devastating.
1: It's, I've I've been like rewatching like Avatar: The Last Airbender with my dad lately, Mm -hmm. and it has like spoilers for Avatar, I guess. Um, it has the same feeling to me as um the end of season two. Like that moment where you think, oh, it's going to be this epic moment where Anne goes into the Avatar state and fucking destroys all the enemies. And then he just dies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) I think you can also directly contrast this moment, or not even contrast, you can just compare. You can compare this moment to the reveal of who the spy is. (sighs)
1: oh <sighs> it hurts
0: because we've been talking just as like we've been talking about like oh it's gonna be so cool when clarice shows up we've also been talking about like oh the spy it's gonna be this big thing
1: god i was i was fucking right about the spy and i didn't want to be
0: no <laughs> I, I think the way that you put it is that it would be like the cruelest possible option if she was the spy mm-hmm and that's true, but not in the way that you meant it, I think.
1: Uh, no, I, I I was anticipating that the spy would be like, just like a piece of shit. This is much worse.
0: Yeah, and I think what's really good here, what's really, really good, what makes me say like, oh, Rick Riordan is a good writer, is that this is... A subversion of, not expectations, a subversion of expectations is, I think, sometimes easy. This is like a, this is showing us exactly where, like, this is like calculating out, okay, this is where the readers will be on their emotional journey. This is what they will want to happen. This is how they will be feeling at this time. This is the best moment to demonstrate. This is the best moment to use anticlimax, basically. absolutely. This is a really good anticlimax.
1: You're kind of expecting it to just be like the party ponies again. Like, everything was kind of fucked, it was down to the wire, and then, boom, reinforcements come in and save them. Mm-hmm. And so you're expecting it to be like that again, and then it just hammers you out of nowhere with this like horrific emotional gut punch. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's simply very good. It is, and you know what is also extremely good?
0: Uh, what is that?
1: Uh, Clarice going on a fucking rampage after this happens.
0: Clarice, oh god, it hurts. Clarice becomes like fucking Kratos, God of War, <laughs> fucking Shadow of the Colossus. She takes down this giant monster in like one strike. It's... It, we're always... We are the Clarice fan club, for sure.
1: We wanted a Clarice epic moment, but not like this.
0: Not like this. God
1: just like is it... it's it's such good catharsis for the reader as well mm-hmm. to have just had this like emotionally devastating moment and then for like for clarice to be channeling the anger and grief that the reader is feeling into this like horrific rampage where she's running around slaughtering monsters and like literally baying for Kronos's blood like telling so... him to get his ass out there so that she can kill him it's so good
0: yeah, it's and it's so haunting too because she's like dragging the corpse around with her or something mm-hmm. like that.
1: The corpse and of the drakon, not Silena. We should clarify.
0: God, no, no, no! That's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. No, the the, the drakon corpse, which is like giant, but is like you know, and she has like the aura of Ares surrounding her.
1: Yeah, and I, uh. I love that. Like Percy is kind of shitting himself while this is happening. Because uh-huh. he like he recognizes the look in Clarice's eyes, and it's the exact same look from when Ares was trying to kill him.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's haunting. Did I I already use that word? Maybe. Uh, it's
1: it bears repeating. It is very haunting.
0: It, it it's haunting because there's it's it's not cathartic exactly. It's it's kind of cathartic, but it's also just immeasurably sad.
1: Absolutely
0: because okay I it's like like the catharsis of tragedy exactly exactly but it's not like Clarice gets she gets no resolution here yeah no
1: she she doesn't get Silena back
0: and not only that but we leave her like we don't leave her like even if she is like she ended these chapters like tired and slumped over and defeated I think that'd be something Mm mm-hmm but the last time we see her she's still just like like going down the empty streets like looking for something to kill.
1: Yeah, it's it's fucks. It
0: it's really it's really good. This is a really good book.
1: It's a very good book.
0: And I guess speaking of just like really sad deaths, just like we need to talk about Linnaeus. That this
1: <laughs> this fucking hit me out of nowhere yeah i was expecting to be cheering when this dude kicked the bucket so the old goat dude
0: who grover who was like i the weird like there's like a there's like a catholic versus protestant split (laughs) in the satyr community about what's going on with pan and
1: i feel like a, a better analogy might be like grover is like their jesus
0: Grover is a little bit Jesus, uh and like I don't then the grumpy old dude who was just kind of a mean asshole dies and it's like wow, that's like fucked up and sad. It dies he
1: dies in like a really, really rough way. Where he's he just a spear like in his belly. Like asking Grover if they won.
0: Yeah. And Grover, you know, comforts him because Grover's a good guy. He's like, yeah, man, we won. It was all thanks to you. Yeah. And that's the that just hits. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Especially because it's like, it's just after the Silena thing. So it's just Rick shoveling on more and more.
0: Yeah. And sometimes shoveling on can be, I think,
1: really poorly done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if Percy just, like, walked into, like, a big hall, and a bunch of his friends were, like, dead, and it was read off in, like, list form, that'd be a really shitty way of doing it, just to pick a random example out of thin air. Just to,
0: like, pick a random example, just, like, not, (laughs) you know, not comparing it to anything else, just, like, saying, you know? Uh Uh-huh. But instead it's, like, oh, like, these people who Percy knew, but Percy wasn't, like, close to, but they were still, like, people... (laughs) Yeah. And they are all people fighting for the same thing. And part of the moment that really gets me is Percy, like one of the Stoll brothers comes up and is like, Hey, I heard about Silena. Is it true that she was, and Percy was like, she was a hero. And that's all you're going to ever say to anyone. Yep. And that's, it's, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's good shit.
1: It Listen, these chapters are all good shit. Mostly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Sixteen and seventeen are all good shit. Fifteen's fine. Yeah.
0: It's got the it's got the Sally and Paul stuff. That's true. It's it's got some Annabeth stuff, it's got some good fighting. I don't know. Uh the party ponies are there, and that's maybe not the best thing that could be happening, but you know.
1: I'm just gonna briefly rag on that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It just it feels like the exact same mistake from the end of Sea of Monsters. we like, we're getting into this finale, shit's getting serious and then all of a sudden the wacky party ponies are here and they've got funny comedy weapons which i i feel like it could have maybe worked with like one very simple change which is that you give the party ponies actual weapons this time mm cuz that would really sh- like it would give you an idea of like how the stakes have risen and it would like build on what was in the last book rather than just kind of repeating it
0: right yeah i i, I can agree with that for sure I think I disagree with your larger point insofar okay. as like I think this is effectively like cutting the tension where it needs to be cut to let the rest of the chapters not to let this not just be like a slog of darkness. I
1: suppose that's true,
0: yeah. If it was something that was like really funny though, I'd I'd like it, you know, better. Hmm. Yeah.
1: No. To be clear, I don't mind like something funny happening or like just reinforcements showing up to help. It's specifically just the party ponies I don't like.
0: No, totally understandable. I completely agree with you. I'm not into the centaur frat bros.
1: (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Who, like, get drunk before the fighting starts again, so they get fucking slaughtered. Which is actually kind of funny. In an extremely (laughs) bleak way.
0: Jesus, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they go, you know, they raid a stash of root beer because it's still a kid's book.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, I don't know these were good chapters uh do we want to talk
1: about i feel like we're mostly wrapped up i think so oh i i i'm like losing my mind over something Uh uh-huh i i need someone to make a crack about chronos being the doctor why he is a time lord and he is stamping around screaming about his regeneration (laughs) <laughs> that is the exact word he uses. I, I I need someone to acknowledge it, please, so I don't feel insane.
0: You know who I think that person is that needs to acknowledge it, Jane. Who? I think it's you. I think you <laughs> need to
1: self-actualize. <laughs> what you're saying is that I need to write like a fan fiction, which is just like all of this copy-pasted, except Prometheus makes a crack about that.
0: Yeah, Prometheus. I I, I
1: enjoyed his presence here. Yeah, I I always like the like snarky lieutenant who, like, is not afraid to, like, poke his boss a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, especially because we know that he has such an interesting relationship with both sides.
1: Yeah, like, he is not overflowing with sycophantic loyalty to Kronos. No. Like, this is very much an alliance of convenience for him. I think,
0: I think let's move on to our segment.
1: I think we should move on to the segment.
0: Do you want to hit us first, Jane, with which Percy Jackson character is not cis-hat?
1: Uh, I, I would like to hit you with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit the obvious one, but I am uh-huh. going to back it up with facts and perhaps even logic. Go ahead. So, Silena and Clarice, right? Okay, yeah. I, I do not think that it can be unintentional how hard this moment echoes, like Achilles and Patroclus.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: Because, like, the, like it's the moment where, like, the amazingly cool and powerful warrior through their own like pride and personal failings has kind of gotten someone they care about killed and -hmm. the resulting like rage from that results in like a huge rampage which turns the tide of the battle
0: well was were they the trojan war
1: yeah and like prometheus even specifically name drops the trojan war earlier which i think only adds more evidence to this
0: it's got to be intentional
1: yeah i mean to be clear, Clarice is like stood there with her not gay. So I don't I don't I'm not sure if it's like specifically what Rick was intending going into this, but I think it's absolutely like a valid reading of the text.
0: It hits every like sad ro- tragedy romantic death beat.
1: I mean, yeah, she dies in Clarice's arms and then Clarice like screams at the sky.
0: It's r- and it, like if this was like I don't know they're they're gay. They're gay.
1: These bitches gay. Good for them.
0: Yeah. So, let's maybe you should give it to Silena because I don't think she'll have
1: another opportunity. That's a good point. For, for, for the final time, we'll give it to Selena.
0: But I I like to give I would like to crown Silena and Clarice uh, best ship that should have happened.
1: Absolutely.
0: I I have a kind of a I guess a more out of the box uh answer. Uh huh, but also a return to form. Okay. In the in the conversation with Dionysus, uh, Percy is called a series of names, uh, which are not <laughs> his own. Uh, for instance, you know, Peter Johnson—it's a classic one. Mm-hmm. He he calls him like oh you know Pierre? Pierre. I think Pierre was in there. <laughs> he calls him Pierre at one point. Um, the one that sticks out to me is when he said when he when I mean, he like. You're ruining my game, Jorgensen (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't uh, A quick history lesson for people Christine Jorgensen is a very famous uh, Like trans woman From uh, Like she was in the military And then she had Like uh, Sexual reassignment surgery And then Uh got really famous Kind of, or like got a lot of press coverage For it, kind of
1: Oh, is this the one um, from like the 50s?
0: Yeah, like 50s, yeah
1: yeah, oh yeah, I remember seeing like screenshots of like old news headlines that were like from GI to, uh, you know, yeah, like lady. from
0: GI to Glamour Babe or that's something the like one. that. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I just think it's very funny that that's the specific <laughs> name that Dionysus uses for Percy. Uh, so I'm nominating Percy Jackson. Absolutely. At... It's been too long, but welcome back, my daughter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Percy Jackson is an honorary Unwise Girl. That's true.
0: Uh, I think that'll do it for us today. I think so. It's been a hard one, but we've gotten through it.
1: Yeah, these chapters were fucking jam-packed.
0: Uh, if you'd like to reach the show, you can check us out at Twitter, at Unwise Girls. you got all our links to our email, a Discord server, Patreon. Uh, you know, do all that stuff. Uh, if you want to support the show... You can leave us a rating, review, tell a friend is really helpful. Uh, show them some clips, uh, and if you would like to support us even more directly, you can go to patreoncom unwisegirls where you can support us for a variety of different tiers. The first tier is the one dollar a month. You get an act. You get the special role on our Discord server of camp counselor, and you know our, our dearest gratitude. At $3, you might think of the special role of Friend of Dionysus and all our bonus content. Uh, we talk about things like Homestuck. We talk about things like Doctor Who. We talk about just whatever shit we're feeling like. You know, maybe you'll hear some, some hidden stories about the world of martial arts.
1: Uh, or we'll talk about Cockalicious. <laughs>
0: Uh, and uh, for $5 a month, you get the specialist stroll of Aphrodite's Chosen, all our bonus content, and your name read out at the end
1: of every episode. Speaking of which, this week, we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.
0: And as we always say, at the end of every single episode...
1: See you next week, Camp Half-Blood.
0: See you next week, Camp Half-Blood.
1: Bye-bye. Bye.